Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 52, Pope Anastasius II. Oh, he also wants to be Anastasius. It's me, Anastasius, again! <laughs> yes, this is our second Pope Anastasius. Are you ready for this man who is not going to live up to Gelasius? <laughs> Spoiler alert! Oh, that's okay. He's not going to be a spider. He is not going to be a ghost spider. What happened to us that day? I'm going to listen back to that for quality control and be like, wow. <laughs> that, that's it. I, yeah, that'll be my only note back to you. So, Anastasius. Anastasius was born in Rome. According to the Liber Pontificalis, he was, quote, born in the 5th district Talma of the Caput Tori. And we've talked about this area before because this is where Pope Alexander I was from. And Caput Tori is, you know, the head of the bull and has since been identified as the Esquiline Hills. Anastasius' father was called Peter, and Peter was a priest. Okay, explain this bull thing to me. So the Caput Tori, you know, head of the bull of the Esquiline Hills, was that area which is the largest of the seven hills of Rome. Mm -hmm. Where's the rest of the bull? Well, there's, you know, seven hills of Rome, so this bull has a bumpy body. <laughs> who lives in the butt of the bull? Don't know what you would consider. The, who would, if, if Esquiline Hill is... I'm going to send you a map, because then we'll be... You can, you can determine for yourself... Which one's the butt? Yeah. Okay. So the Esquiline Hill is in the middle. Yeah, why is that his head? Because it's the largest of the seven hills, right? So that's okay. So it's just it's kind of sitting down on his haunches. He's got a bumpy, bumpy body. Yeah, and and like we talked about in Alexander's episode when we first talked about the Esquiline Hill, this was an area that was at one point a popular place of execution. And then Nero had built his golden house near it. So by the time we're talking about now, it's a very affluent neighborhood. It was an affluent neighborhood by the time Alexander lived there. So by now, it's pretty nice. By the nature of that being the head, then the Capitoline Hill has to be the butt. Well, then when he, when this bull sits down and squishes out its body, it's got some flappy haunches because it's just like melts out. It like melts out like a pancake, apparently. <laughs> so this is already the worst bull I've ever seen. I mean, you could make an argument for the Aventine being the, the actual butt if it's kind of curled around itself. What are we doing? <laughs> Geography of Rome with the Pontifex ladies. Oh, boy. <laughs> We're trying to find the butt of this bull. I mean, the Calian Hill has that nice little curvature, but then it would be right next to the head. So what kind of bull is this? I assume the Escaline's the head and the, the Calian is the, like, the upper chest. And yeah. then the Palatine's, like, the back. And the Viminal's also the back. And then the... Capitoline is the butt, and then the Quirinal and the Aventine are, like, the legs. Okay, we'll go with that. I mean, 
at the Capitoline Hill, there is, that's where the greatest museum is in Rome in terms of like Roman history or whatever. So now every time I visit the Capitoline Museum, I'm going to say, I'm like perched on the butt of the bull. (laughs) (laughs) That's a thing. If you're going to Rome, take a picture of yourself at the head or the butt of the bull. Yeah. None of the rest matter. Yeah, no. Okay, back to Anastasius. His father was called Peter, and Peter was a priest. And this information I got from a snippet in the book Papal Genealogy, The Families and Descendants of the Popes by George L. Williams. And I want this book so bad. So anybody who's listening who is like, a librarian or has access to books at any rate, if you can find this for not $200 Canadian on Amazon, I want it. I want it so bad. So this is a call to action. If you can find Papal Genealogy, The Families and Descendants of the Popes by George L. Williams, I will love you forever. She will. So, so much. So. Anyways, since his father was a priest, we can make an inference that Anastasius probably got into the church early in life, and since he was from Rome proper, he had a longer opportunity to have an impact on the local clergy, who would eventually elect the Pope. Now, before we get rolling in Anastasius' papacy, there is one thing about his pre-papal life that is going to lead us on a bit of a digression, so... Another one? Yes! Already! We're going. So, this is where we're going to start to see the use of the term cardinal as an actual role in the church, because... Are there cardinal birds in Rome? Cardinal birds in Rome. Well, this that's not where the term actually comes from, and we're going to... We're going to talk about that in just a second. Because Anastasius is credited as being a cardinal deacon appointed to the role by Pope Gelasius. So, yeah, we're just going to go ahead and introduce cardinals to the church hierarchy, sort of. So, no one knows exactly for sure why the term cardinal became a role in the church. But the general agreed-upon understanding by historians is that it's derived from the word cardinalis, which would be used in reference to any clergyman who was permanently attached to a church. So this could apply to priests, deacons, and later bishops in their own way. So basically any member of the clergy, a clericus, therefore could be either in titulatus or in cardinatus with or without a permanent attachment to the church. Or I guess I should say, without or with a permanent attachment to the church, respectively. This also became a term that would be used for prominent priests who were in charge of the important churches, and the priests responsible for the 25 Roman tituli that we discussed way back when our popes were fixated on dividing Rome into manageable administrative regions. Not all priests who served at these locations would be called cardinal priests. Just the first, a fixed and permanent priest, so whoever was in charge of that location would be the cardinal priest of that location. And by extension, we see the term cardinal deacon cropping up here to designate the deacons who were responsible for the seven larger regions of Rome, So they are affixed to a regional attachment rather than to one specific church. 
And if you need a refresher on the titulae and the regions and the parishes and diaconates that we've been talking about, we talked about them in Pope Clement's episode, which is episode six, and Evaristus's episode, episode seven, and Fabian's episode, episode 22. So the roles of cardinal bishops we're not even going to touch for now because they're not really going to become prominent until about the 8th century, where we're actually going to see the term become closer to what we know it is today as an elevated sort of class of clergymen with special rights and privileges, including being the only ones who were eligible to become pope. But at this point, just the reason we get into this at all is that Anastasius, being a cardinal priest or a cardinal deacon, was not about being an elevated clergyman so much as being a fixed point, a person with direct responsibilities to the place that they served. So he is one of these guys. He is one of these permanently affixed deacon to a region of Rome until he becomes pope. And so from all of that and having a better understanding of how this term is going to pop up and then develop through the church through the medieval era, we can also infer that if Anastasius was appointed by Gelasius to the role of cardinal deacon, that he must have been in part responsible for one of those seven regions. And since he had a credited reputation of being a kindly and peaceable disposition, this is probably where his impressions were made to get him elected when Pope Gelasius died. Now, speaking of, Anastasius was elected on November 24th of 496 and was coming into the papacy after a very strong force for papal supremacy and theology in Gelasius but one who had only made the conflicts with the Eastern Church and state much worse. So the first thing that Anastasius was going to have to figure out is how he's going to approach this Acacian Schism thing. At this point, the conflict had been going on for 12 years without an effective resolution, and it had to be priority number one. It's even suggested that one of the major reasons that Anastasius received the election to the papacy was based on a large clerical faction who wanted to see Constantinople get reconciled, and that Anastasius, being that goodly, peaceful man, was of the best disposition to accomplish that goal. It's a precarious situation to navigate. We've seen this with Felix III and Gelasius being too hard-lined and things only getting worse. So in order for a pope to solve this issue, he was going to have to find a way to compromise with the emperor and the patriarch of Constantinople and their very firm tradition of honoring their predecessors on the diptychs. Ah, uh, yes, the diptychs. Yeah. And he had to balance that with hanging on to the hard and fast declaration of the prime authority of the pope over the entire church and now over the emperor when it came to religious matters, as with Gelasius's duo-sunt doctrine. So, the first thing that Anastasius does when he becomes pope is he sends two bishops as legates to Constantinople to meet with the emperor, who, by the way, is also called Anastasius. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we have Emperor Anastasius I, Pope Anastasius II. Why do they love that name? I don't know. I don't know why it's so popular at this time, but it is. So now it's it's me also Anastasius moment, so. It's like Eusebius, the Eusebii. 
the Eusebii. So many Eusebii. Now we have Anastasii. So in his letter that he sends to Emperor Anastasius, Pope Anastasius made it clear that he wouldn't yield on the demand to remove Acacius's name from the diptychs of Constantinople, because that would be too great of a compromise, considering that Acacius had removed the name of the Pope at the beginning of the schism, and Acacius's communion with heretics and his support of the Hanoticon was just too much for the Pope to simply forgive. It would make him look weak. But Anastasius is extremely committed to reconciliation, and he presented a compromise that he felt would suit both sides of the conflict well enough that peace could be accomplished and the schism could be ended. So in his letter, he indicated to the emperor that he'd be willing to recognize the sacramental acts of Acacius, you know, his baptisms, his Eucharist, his holy orders, etc., so that this way, things could move on without a massive overhaul as long as they took Acacius off. The diptychs. And it seemed like Emperor Anastasius was fairly willing to work with the Pope, but he also wanted the Pope to accept the Hanoticon, which was going to be infinitely more problematic. Now, while the correspondence with the Emperor is going on, the Pope receives a deacon called Photinus of Thessalonica in Rome. And this story's a bit murky to suss out the exact details, but we're going to do our best. Photinus had been sent to the Pope by Andrew, who was a member of the Thessalonica clergy, who had been a follower of Acacius. Some sources suggest that Andrew had repudiated Acacius and had sent this deacon to plead his case to the Pope and readmit him to the church. Although, unfortunately, this Andrew, who is now trying to get back into the church, made a very bad choice in who he sent, because Photinus was known to be a follower of Acacius and had been labeled such by Pope Gelasius, and there's no evidence that he had done any repudiating of Acacius himself. So, when he shows up in Rome, and the Pope willingly accepts him into communion as a peacemaking gesture on behalf of Andrew, it really looks like the Pope is holding communion with a heretic. And the hardline clergy of Rome is not happy. Oh no, they wouldn't be. Like, first, the Pope is willing to recognize the acts of Acacius, and now he's welcoming the heretics Photinus and Andrew, the latter of which may, they may had not known that Andrew had come back to orthodoxy. They just knew at one point he was a supporter of Acacia's. It looks real bad. And to make matters worse, at the same time that this is going on, there's a senator in Rome called Rufinus Postumius Festus. And we are going to talk about this guy for a long time, so remember his name. We'll just call him Senator Festus most of the time. He had come to Rome for the emperor to encourage the Roman church to accept the Hanoticon and to patronize church figures who might be able to help him achieve that goal. He is going to be the meddliest meddly man for a long time. He's just like, I'm going to come in here and see who I can give money to, to convince the Pope and everyone in the clergy to support the Hanoticon. 
But as you can imagine, with everything else that's going on, this had the clergy more suspicious than ever. And at this point, there is full-on outrage, and the clergy basically cracks right down the middle between the ones who wanted to work towards reconciliation with Constantinople and those who now think the Pope is a traitor for accepting the heretics. And we're not using this word lightly here. The hardliners are 100% condemning Anastasius II as a heretic, an apostate, and a traitor, and they refuse to receive communion from him. Crazy. Yeah, so they're like, this Pope man, he is, he is going way too far in trying to reconcile with Constantinople. He is recognizing the sacramental acts of a heretic. He is accepting heretics into his communion. Clearly, this man is a secret monophysite who wants the Hanoticon and everything. So they are so done. And this series of misunderstandings and unfortunate coincidences has reached a crisis point. Do you want to guess what happens next? Does he excommunicate them all? He does not. He dies. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Extremely suddenly, before any of this can be clarified or diffused or, like, not left as a total bomb waving to go off. And and this is where things get a lot harsher, because if we read the Liber Pontificalis entry on Anastasius, on his death, it says, quote, He was struck dead by divine will. Basically here they're saying he was evil and a heretic, so God struck him down. <laughs> God did it? Yeah, well, I mean, it would justify their cause. So we see a similar phrasing to this in the Decretum Graciani. So this poor man gets known to history being cut down by holy retribution for trying to make peace. And this is going to be his legacy and how he was going to be viewed for a very long time particularly because of what happens afterwards, because what happens when we have such a divided clergy? Antipopes. Always antipopes. This is how you get antipopes. And the schism is going to make it pretty damn impossible for the church to go and deal with the Cation schism while they have their own in Rome on the go. So, despite all that, Pope Anastasius II gets buried in the atrium at St. Peter's Basilica, the uh, traitor pope, quote, gets at least that much honor. But his tomb was destroyed when the old St. Peter's was demolished for the construction of the new one in the 16th century. But part of his epitaph survives, and it is an elegy. Now the threshold of the servant who held the highest seat. Here the bishop Anastasius has earned a tomb. Begotten in the priesthood, he chose the tenets of life and born in the office of God's militia. Bearing the commands of pontifical servitude with a chaste heart, he won a great and apostolic name. This was clearly a much later epitaph when they were trying to rehabilitate his reputation. Of course. But that's him. And and now we must rate him. Oh, we gotta rate this guy who just abruptly died. All right, cool. After such a mess. Papatum infallium. This is a pope we're going to have to balance between impact and reputation. Because there's no doubt that his reputation has been extremely damaged, and his legacy has been super abused, especially by medieval historians that follow. It's really only recently that modern historians have actively tried to rehabilitate his reputation. 
and evaluate just how unjust his characterization is. And we're going to come back to that with pretty much every category. So we do have to acknowledge that he did not accomplish his goal of ending the occasion schism and seemed to only exacerbate the problem. And Deborah Booten McCoy, who is a historian who we use for every pope so far, her title for him is the failed arbitrator, which is fairly fitting. He didn't actually do anything to solve that problem. And last thing to consider in this category, we didn't fit it into the main narrative because it would have just distracted from the way that the story went, but he is also tangentially credited with condemning a heresy called Trudationism in a letter to the bishops of Gaul. And Trudationism is a theological idea since the time of Tertullian and revolves around the creation of the soul. Basically, it says that only Adam's soul was made by God, whereas the more traditional creationist view is that all souls are made by God. But that's it. He failed in the arbitration, and he may have condemned a heresy. So what do you want to give him? I don't even know how to start rating him. Okay. Okay. He condemned, which is good. Yep. But then everything got fucky. So I'm going to give him maybe like a like a two. All right, I am going to give him a token one point because he really tried. He was elected for the purpose of reconciling with Constantinople. Everyone wanted this reconciliation to happen. How they went about it was the tricky part, and he tried. And I'm for once, I am going to give a point for trying because he was a good trier. It just went so bad. He was a good trier. So he gets a three in Papatum of Valium. That is the most Tegan thing to say right now. That's why I said it, because she says it all the time about Punch Baby. Yeah, he's a good trier. Fructus prohibitum. Well, he was a traitor, a heretic, an apostate. I mean, clearly he wasn't, but this is his reputation and legacy for for long enough that he should at least get some points here. If it, If he is going to be known for these things, let's at least give him a point or two so that it was worth something in the end that, you know, 1,500 years later, it would be worth a point on a podcast. <laughs> I'll give him another two because I'm tired. I think a two is fair, but there's one more thing you have to consider before we rate him in this category. And this is the biggest thing we know about him. He appears in Dante's Inferno. Ooh, what level is he on? He's in the sixth ring of hell, reserved for heretics and blasphemers. I'm going to match your two so he gets at least a four in this category, but when we get to Seculari Impactum, he is going to get a Brie Florence bias point, so. So, a four, I think, is fair. Oh, and by the way, we're going to do a bonus episode where we are going to read the sixth ring of hell for all of you, so... When you were asking me during D&D why the heck I needed music to make it sound like we were in hell. Yes! Surprise! Why is that a thing you need? Why are we <laughs> taking Darkest Dungeon music? Yep. So that's a thing that's coming. We are going to be reading Dante's Inferno, at least the section of the Sixth Ring of Hell. Seculari Impactum. This is where he gets a point for being in Dante's Inferno because it is one of the most famous literary works in history. Also, 
The other thing I want to mention in this category is there was a time where there was a letter that was thought to be written by him to Clovis, the first king of the Franks, congratulating him on his conversion to Catholicism. But it is now considered a 17th century forgery since Clovis wasn't actually baptized until after Anastasius died. So 17th century fan fiction. Yep. So I, he gets my bias bonus point. Do you want to give him anything? Yeah, you know, Dante's Inferno is forever, so. It is forever, yes. So, yeah, probably. At least he's not in the poop level. Yeah, he is not in a poop level, although what happens to him and where he is sucks real bad. I mean, it's hell. Yeah, but, like, his specific punishment sucks real bad. This is the bad place, Bree. It, it is the bad place, and it is it is definitely a personalized bad place, so. Coming soon. So he gets a two for Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Never before, I think, has there been a Pope man who is so accurately reflected in his looks. Is this Jafif? We will find out if it's a Jafif. I never know if it's a Jafif <laughs> until I actually send it to you. But if you want to see a Pope who has been battered, beaten, and bruised by history, ta-da! Wow. He's got a shiner. He has an actual shiner in his Pope photo. Yep. He also has, like, a hole going on in his throat. He looks real mad about being punched in the face. He looks tired. He's so tired and sad about everything, and I feel so badly for him. Also, his hair, the tufts of hair, the way it falls, totally reminds me of the ears of the little Dumbo squid. Oh, yeah. But also, they're kind of all matted and gross. He's all matted and gross. This man has been so poorly abused. Yeah, that's the one on Nemo that says this leg's shorter than the others. I hate, it's the only Disney movie I actively hate. <laughs> like, I know, it's it's sacrilegious, and I shouldn't even say it on here, but it is the only Disney movie I hate, so. It's better than Cars 3. I don't know, I disagree. I, f no, mm-mm, mm-mm. We're going to have a Disney fight off air. <laughs> Technically, it's not Disney, so blah, blah. Pixar is Disney now. I mean, I guess, I guess, yeah, they've kind of amalgamated. There is literally Pixar Pier at Disney Parks. Miyazaki so, yeah. can stay. Yeah, f*** that guy. Be nice to Miyazaki. I don't like any of his movies. He's so. an old man who wants to teach you about the environment. And how sad war is. Well, maybe he needs to tell people in Japan about that because, my goodness, I loved that country, but they are the most environmentally unfriendly place I have ever been. Stop with your plastic! That's what he's doing. Everything is like, oh, the nature gods are all upset, or oh, this is World War II and children are starving. His movies are very sad. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. I just don't like them. They're long and meandering. Mm, that's why I don't like them. Okay, so back to his battered face. I mean, this is worth some points, for sure. Yeah, he's got an actual shiner. Mm-hmm. So what is it worth? Um, maybe five. You're gonna give him a five? Okay, I'm gonna give him more. I'm gonna give him an eight, because this. I looked at this image after doing all the research on him and being like, poor, poor Anastasius has been so abused, and then I saw this photo and died laughing. 
He's been abused really bad. It's so literal. So he is going to get a 13 in that category, which gives him a 3.25 when we score it up. Tempest Pontificus. November 24th, 496 to November 16th of 498. Two years, a score of 0.5. Nothing major there. All right, everybody, it's the cannon bonus round. Nah. No. He is not a saint. Well, he wouldn't be. He has been perceived so terribly for so long. But that being said, he is only the second pope at this point not to be considered a saint. The other thing is, though, he is definitely whatever the opposite of a saint is. An anti-saint? A demon? (laughs) A demon? Yeah, he's like, he's in hell hanging out? He's in hell, yeah! (laughs) So that should be worth, I don't know, something. Well, it's definitely not worth sainthood, and we definitely can't make him a patron saint of being in hell, so... (laughs) By the way, we are going to have other popes in hell by Dante, so... We just, we need a, we need a, I don't know, a hell club. A hell club. Okay, well, he can be president of the hell club because he's the first one there. Liberius didn't get to be a saint, but, you know. He didn't go to the hell club. He might have apostatized for realsies, so, yeah. I think we need to give him something. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to put in here, not applicable, because I have not applicable written in patron sainthood, but I'm going to write, aka, captain of the hell club. Don't forget. Well, I mean, he's he's going to have some people join him soon. So let's talk about his total score. Okay. 12.75. Oh. He he scored higher than Felix 3. That's something. Yep, he, he scored higher than Pope Hilarius. That's also something. Yep. So now, do you think scoring higher than those popes and having such an incredible, horrible legacy that he's papally enough... Or pizzazzy enough for a papal bull? Maybe if he had lasted just a little while longer. Oh, yeah, I know. It's it's a hard one because you kind of want to really help rehabilitate his relationship. And you want him so bad to be bull-worthy so you have something to say about him, but no. I mean, he's the first pope in hell. He's the captain of the hell club. But that is not bull-worthy, I don't think. No. We're so sorry, Anastasia's too. We tried. We're bringing light to your story. We are actively helping to rehabilitate your reputation here on this podcast. So we're doing something. And you are currently in 40th place. So you are not last. Small joys. Small joys. But that brings us to the end of this episode. And so we can say thank you to Rex Factor, Totalis Rankium. And we're going to thank Sad Girl Study Guides for, for recommending us on Twitter today. And with that, We can say thank you and goodbye. Uh, bye. Uh, bye. Uh, bye. Uh, whatever. Bye. Oh my god. Goodbye. I said bye already. Get out. Jeez. You hang up. (laughs) 